Welcome to the Beyond X podcast. I'm your host, Mahir Ibrahimi, and every week I speak to leading industry experts, trailblazers, and market leaders, where we discuss the key topics of our time in detail and have a deep dive conversation on areas like sustainability, technology, urban planning and city design, health and fitness, and more. In today's episode of Beyond Tech, I spoke with Dr. Professor Derek Whitgate, where we covered key topics like AI, smart cities, BCI, accessibility of tech, and the key fundamental requirements for essentially setting these technologies up and making the most of them for the future. But at the core of our conversation was a key fact that technology only serves as an enabler for key visions. And the most important thing to keep in mind when thinking to the future is to keep the human-centric journey at the core of all the decision-making. The different discussion points are all timestamped throughout the episode, so you can freely move around as you see fit. Derek is a consulting futurist, educator, author, speaker, and curator. He's the president and chief futurist at the Futures Lab, Inc. in the U.S., a foresight consultancy he founded in 1996, which specializes in creating future potential for major corporations and institutions. Derek holds multiple teaching roles at various universities, including the University of Adger in Norway, the University of Houston College of Technology Foresight Program, where he teaches grad students in applied foresight, and the Prince Mohammed bin Fahad University in Saudi Arabia, where he is an advisor to the Vice President on Academic Affairs. Derek was recently appointed to the Executive Board of the Center for Future Studies at the University of Dubai, and is also a member of the World Future Studies Federation, head of the UNESCO Committee on the subject, and a founding member of the Association of Professional Futurists. Derek has worked on numerous international integrated city development projects at the government, regional, and local levels. Some of his past work include as an advisor to the U.S. government on the Future of Transportation and Infrastructure 2050 Plan, the UAE Ministry of Interior on Security, Policing, Traffic, and Civil Defense, the UN and UNESCO on the Advancement of Future Literacy for Societal Improvement, the Ministries of Education of both Norway and Germany, Introducing Transdisciplinarity for Societal Transformation, the Texas State Government on the Third-Year Development Plan of the Future of Austin, the Central Texas Technology Corridor, and the Cultural Development of the City of Austin, as well as the Future of Energy Tech for City Development the Malaysian government on the integration of creatives into the 30-year Kuala Lumpur development plan, the city of London for the repurposing of Covent Garden and the future vision for Silicon Roundabouts, and its corporate clients have included Microsoft, Intel, Coca-Cola, Philips, Ford, Fiat, Kellogg's, Nestle, Henkel, Nokia, Intercontinental Hotels, MTV, Nissan, BBC, Shell, Hugo Boss, and many more. So without further ado, it's a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Professor Derek Woodgate. It's a pleasure to be here with you finally on the episode. Well, thank you for inviting me. I think it's going to be an action-packed episode, so I'm going to try to keep things as concise as I can. I want to start things off before we get into the technical topics by asking you how you got into futurism, what moved you towards this field, and essentially how did this journey begin for you? I came from corporate. I was um, the senior VP at the VF Corporation, um, um, responsible actually for global strategy. And the last years of that, we were engaged very extensively 
in investments. It was the beginnings of globalization, so investments into factories in countries that most people have not heard of, into technologies and structures and new ways of doing things that really were transformative for the industry at the time. And part of my role was to understand the risks that were involved in these types of investments or these type of shifts. These were very, it was going from fairly conventional ways of producing and manufacturing things within their own predominantly within their own U.S. and European manufacturing environments into areas that were politically fairly unstable, economically unstable in many cases. And where you make those types of investments, you need a 15-year understanding at least of what the potential is you want to go in and pull out. And so I started doing that more like long-term strategic planning and realized that wasn't good enough. And I started reading books, particularly Bob, that I now know from fairly well-known colleagues, about this field called Future Studies, which I'd never heard of, to be honest. And it gave me an insight into a completely new way of thinking about the future. Moreover, I found a book called, I think it was called Emerging Technologies, 2057. It was in 1997. So it was a really long-term vision a cross between sci-fi, university, lab developments, and wishful thinking. But it was very interesting. And also a book by Richard Slaughter called New Thinking for the New Millennium. Obviously, I got a very good cross-section of what was happening. So I began to study that. And then when I formed the Futures Lab, clearly it was not based on true future studies at the time, because I wasn't that familiar, but it had a lot of those elements. And I think coming from from a large corporation at a high level allowed me to do that. And luckily, my first client was VF. They wanted me to come back and do some work for them through Gray International, my company. And I was very lucky because Gray, who had been the agency for VF at the time, just set up a futures company. Not, again, not real future studies as we know it now, but along that line. And all my, for the first five years of my company, a lot of that work came through Gray. And as they're one of the largest agencies in the world, so their clients were phenomenal. And so my startup in all this was working with some of the world's largest companies that really took me, pushed me into the field in a real, very direct and very demanding way. So I just had to learn very fast. And yeah, I read more and more, spoke to people, became a member of the World Future Studies Federation, which allowed me to meet other people. Yeah, and that's basically where it all started. That's quite a long journey, isn't it? From strategy to futurism, especially essentially at the inception of the field. So it'd be great if you could give us a detail of what it is that you consider to be a futurist and more importantly, what the day-to-day of a futurist essentially is, what are the different types of work that you undertake? So whatever I say will be a perfect platform for arguments from anyone that's a futurist or not a futurist. But I'll give you my definition based on, I think, let's say the work 
that I do, the theories that I've developed, and the techniques and processes that I follow and have developed, because I've developed my own over the years, obviously. I was at a conference, an Association Professional Futures Conference, and there were three of us on stage, and we were asked to actually give a definition of what we consider the futurist. And mine was, at the time, and it's still a tagline for the Futures Lab, which is developing or creating future potential. They said, could you give an elevator speech on it? So mine was like four words. And the next person came all, and someone in the middle of it said, we were not talking about an elevator in the Twin Towers. <laughs> and, and I think that, um, in a sense, that was part of the cause reflects upon your question in many ways, that everyone will have their own somewhat. But what I feel is more the question of what are some of the critical elements that define it, which probably is easier in a way to understand. So one of them is I think that I work with what's called unstructured knowledge in unknown worlds. Okay, so I'm working with a lot of weak signals. I'm working with a lot of sci-fi ideas that are actually being developed in back labs, in universities and whatever for one purpose. I can actually see a totally different purpose for and if I merge that with something that also is just about being developed, I can find something else. And so it's about really creating. And so much of the time when people say, what do you do? I would say, I create the future. And they say, well, that's really pretentious. And I say, <laughs> yes, it is very pretentious. But I could say reframing ideas to create the future or whatever you want me to say. But at the end of the day, if I don't feel I'm doing that, and that I'm creating that future for the betterment of society and for the well-being of society, then really I'm not doing anything. I'm playing with strategies and sort of ideas and I'm not really doing it with a real deep purpose. What it involves in many ways is discontinuity, this whole idea where it differs from forecasting and other fields in long-term strategic planning in the sense that it's not about evolving from the present, Yes, of course, we have to understand what happened in the past, near past, and so on and so forth, and the present. But once you've done that, it really is about discontinuity. It's understanding that actually it's not about an evolution today. A good example of this is if 20 years ago or so, someone would have said, how will banking look in the future? You would not think about internet banking in digital currencies. That was not even vaguely in people's minds 20 years ago. And since I'm looking usually 15, 20 years out, I need to understand that type of natural discontinuous check. They potentially say, could banks be open longer? Then we had ATMs and they were worried about whether they lose their money. <laughs> but we've moved so far in the 20, 20 odd years from what banking literally was. That's what I would say is what a futurist does is having that ability to understand, analyze, understand, and create those types of novelties, but functional novelties. But there are a lot of things behind it. We talk about anticipation systems. We talk about all these new types of thinking, recoding thinking techniques. There are a lot of different things to it. Make that happen. And you cannot 
generally speaking, use totally linear thinking to achieve it. It's much more of a combination of linear and non-linear thinking or divergent and convergent thinking systems together. So part of my real interest in this and part of the, my contribution to the field over the years has been coming up with new thinking systems, new thinking techniques, new creative techniques, new ways of dealing with that. Interesting. So if I'm understanding it correctly, it's essentially estimating to some degree what will happen in the future, contingency planning for that to, to some degree, and then future-proofing to ensure that you have, we have the skills, technologies, whatever else is required to, to meet those needs and demands. And now we see these two different areas. I don't actually believe that they're fully two different areas, future studies and foresight. One being that future studies is the broader field of research into the potential future, whereas foresight really is a process potentially used not just by business, it's actually by institutions, business organizations, to actually develop scenarios and a very specific implementation plans, or even to the way that we actually work, which is even stages beyond that, where we're actually creating project ideas, we're creating organizational change developments for that. So it goes even further, so depending on what you do. A lot of futurists, though, or people claiming to be futurists would say, no, I do futurist literacy workshops, anticipatory study workshops, and we come up with potential ideas about the future. And that can take a day or six hours or whatever. Whereas my projects take anything between four months and a year or more. So it's a really different type of work. I think that, yes, you're right. Some of it's about future-proofing. Certainly that for the companies is predominantly about, partly about future-proofing and anticipating change, understanding how to play with transformative change, which most of you are not good at doing that. And how do you get that through the organization? Other work, I work for a number of ministries, is much more about the broader picture of understanding, for example, where can education be 15 years from now? institutionalized education, online education, any formats of education, self-learning, brain implants, or anything else that can come into that because it can be very different of how we see a, an environment for learning in the future. I work for the Ministry of Interior. Obviously, there I'm looking at future security, future policing, both global and national structures for ensuring the, that we are able to maintain a safe and a well-being society, whereby that's critical. And that takes a lot of different aspects because it's looking at all aspects of, if it's policing, from investigative policing to new weaponry to new penal systems, or whatever it happens to be. And there's very broad areas. And clearly, it takes a long time to understand, A, on an individual basis, how these could potentially be transformed into, well, what's the integration of all those? Do we even need prisons in the future? Do we need police in the future? So these are big questions and they're not something you can really do in a three-day workshop. They're something that's very much about going through a deep analytical system and multiple 30 to 40 techniques, whether it's linear thinking technique, creative thinking techniques or whatever, to really keep pushing down and understanding at multiple levels of various perspectives of this, and then breaking those down even further into really 
small bits to understand what they really mean and could mean and what impact they would have on whether it's impact on the institution or impact on society in general, whether it's feasible, whether it's flexible, you know, all these aspects. What's your gut feel about it at the end of the day? So the intuitive aspects as well. Moreover, they cover every single industry, every type of industry, from Intel to fashion. And they also cover every type of organization. So whether it's corporate, institutional, education, institutional ministries, or whatever, non-profits. So all of that's included in that process, and each of them needs to be approached somewhat differently, which is why we have these different approach structures and multiple techniques and tools. Makes perfect sense. I think that's as good an explanation as could be expected. The key thing that comes to my mind is you can't talk about the future without talking about AI. Obviously, it's always a hot topic. You mentioned it a couple of times, ChatGPT and all the potential things that they can do now. It's something that everyone talks about these days, but I think before we really dive deep into what AI can mean for us, we need to define it a bit. I personally had a lot of trouble having a conversation with certain people who are not really involved in the technology side of things about just what is considered AI. And obviously it can range from something as simple as a basic algorithm or smartphone to automated vehicles and machines to a self-sustaining, self-efficient, self-reliant, supreme intelligence. So I I would say let's start things off by defining AI based on your definition, of course, and what range of technologies and concepts you would put within the remit of artificial intelligence? Well, it's a discipline that went back, I think, to 1950s, 56 or something like that. So as you can imagine, over that period of time, both the interpretation of what it is and what it actually is and how we think about it and apply it has shifted dramatically. Still, though, at the end of the day, it's intelligence demonstrating it by machines as opposed to humans and other animals. So the question really is, how do we do that? What is is software, ultimately? And you're right, it's algorithms. And of course, it's those algorithms, or fall into platforms, call them, drive different types of ways of doing things. And you mentioned machine learning and deep learning, which are too obviously, but we have the vision, we have NLP, There's a whole lot of different aspects to this, robotics. They all come under that. And I think that's part of the reason why there's a slight difficulty in the way we're challenged to think about it is because, in a sense, we it is part of our everyday life, so much so, because because we use AI and everything. This is full of it. Everything else we have is full of it. So, of course, at the end of the day, there'll be multiple interpretations of what it is. Ultimately, it is literally as it is, machine intelligence, what it is. And I think it's defined beyond that by by what it does, its applications, and whether it's being used to, we're talking about from an optimizational perspective and thinking about it from modeling human problems, or whether we're solving human problems, or whether we're 
looking at it as a large database of knowledge that we can then create something from and analyze and use its intelligence to deduce so information from that massive data, whether we're using it for NLP, using words, keywords to analyze a piece of written text, or whether we're using it to understand visual text. These are all things it does, but at the end of it, going back to what we said, it's a software based on algorithms predominantly to simplify. And until we start talking about superintelligence, which is a different AGI, which is a little different topic, it really is down to what it does. Even within that, there are these four ways of which we can think about what it can do. So reactive AI, which is most commonly think about. So whether it's a Google recommendation or a Spotify recommendation or a dating recommendation, they're all using those things. Then there's what we call limited memory AI, which is an observational system, really. It's actually learning from observation and from memory. And autonomous vehicles is a good example of that. Then there are those that are being developing. There's a theoretical mind, which is often in robotics now being used, which allows us to talk and have meaningful conversations with those types of robots that have awareness and for us to make inferences and for the robot too, based on our communication and conversation. And then finally, there's what we call self-aware, which are not obviously fully there yet, but that's the machines that actually, well, we're beginning to see, develop their own generative AI, right? It's part of that. But generative AI is a little different to what we originally thought of as self-aware, where we talked about emotional and consciousness and cognitive aspects of AI. And that's one of the big areas we're all working on at the moment. And when you look at robotics, this is one interesting area because there are seven to 10 main robots being developed simultaneously. There's a lot more those we talk about, and each of them has a different function. And so what we're seeing now within a lot of the robotics research is testing each functional area to, to perfection, to optimize on a singular robot. So... Not that a robot has everything. There's an, an interesting thing about robotics. I was talking to the Dr. Michael Pupin Institute in Belgrade because they were one of the first institutes, certainly in Europe, to work on early stage humanoids. So humanoids are like the one you see in Dubai that welcomes you at the airport, stuff like that, that look like a human and were based on humans. And it's an interesting area because currently I'm told that we're roughly around 79% of perfecting a humanoid against a human. And those areas that are really missing are, there are some physical areas which is finding difficult to actually achieve in running and stuff, but most of that will be, I'm sure, resolved. But it's still around the emotional AI areas. And that's part of that green. <laughs> that said, that's actually in a lab. If you put it into real life, it would be about 40%. So we're still quite a way away on some of these things. However, that's on the robotics side. On the pure AI side, as we've seen recently, incredible shifts in, in what we're doing. And obviously even a lot more talk about AGI, general intelligence. And uh, that's the point at which AI surpasses the most gifted human minds and what we call the singularity. And more of it, and Kevin Warwick, and 
and Werner Voringe and Kurzweil and every sci-fi writer has covered that over the past few decades. And I'm sure you've seen all the online debates. It was a major one, I think, in 2017, where everybody thought it was so far away. And now it's become a popular topic again because really, because of open AI and the advances we've made in that area, and much of the time it's talked, oh, that won't happen this century. Oh, what's going to happen in 2045? Now it's, oh my God, let's stop <laughs> developments <laughs> because this could happen sooner than that. So yeah, I suppose doesn't really need to be understood at its essence. It needs to be understood from its functionality and application yeah. and what it can do for us. That's more the point, I think, because actually trying to understand, like for most people, how deep learning functions is not really <laughs> terribly useful. So how would you categorize these different uh, use cases? Obviously, there is the scientific definition of reactive machine AI, limited memory AI, theory of mind AI, and self-aware AI that you mentioned. And I suppose there's the more generic, I, I would call it, definition of narrow intelligence, general intelligence, and super intelligence. But how would you categorize this based on the use cases, based on essentially what we can do with each of these technologies? When you're talking about, for example, between self-driving cars and robots to mobile phone. Based off of the four areas I was talking about as a way of achieving. It's everything that we do in terms of aiding either our memory to real more specific uses in medicine, remote medicine, remote surgery and things like that to implants to new communication systems. But I need to bring in maybe a topic here, which I think is important because AI on its own is one thing. AI, when we put it together with other technologies, is a very different thing. And I think that's the point really today. I will come back on this a little later. But the transdisciplinarity that is currently... so. Some of the dangers is why people feel there are dangers to a certain degree. So what we're actually seeing is this accelerated risk or accelerated danger coming from the merging of nanotechnology, biotechnology, AI and robotics, neurotechnology, quantum computing. Extra computing, I suppose, now. And the neuro, particularly the neurosciences, because they've taken us an area that we feel we know less about. But that becomes a very different area because, and that's where some of the worrying factors are, but some of where some of the most incredible opportunities are going forward in health, in manufacturing, like nanomanufacturing and stuff like that. These are areas AI, together with the other emerging, not even emerging anymore, growing technologies, <laughs> those that we hear about more frequently, are providing us with very different forms of technologies and 
new applications and new possibilities that we've never thought about before. Over the years, I've done a lot of work with sci-fi writers, both on the cyberpunk side with people like Bruce Sterling and William Gibson, who's from a long time ago. 30 years, I suppose, with Sterling, we used to be on panels together at South by Southwest and arguing with each other about all sorts of things, to people like Greg Baer, who recently deceased, who is much more what we call a, a hard sci-fi, he was actually a scientist by profession. And so much of his writings were pretty realistic. And so he and I would discuss both the sci-fi aspect of it, the creed, but also the reality of this and how it could fit together. So a lot of that, why we say today, oh, this is all coming out of sci-fi, is because of the way that sci-fi writers work and who they actually work with, that our imagination has just been blown away by not... And I want to make a point here. This is not just about technologies. I know we're talking a lot about technologies, but I mentioned at the very beginning, Steve, I'm as interested here in, in human development, even human singularity, which I'm sure you've heard me talk about, and, and the augmented human, which is my big thing, down to what environments we're working in. We talked, I know you talked to me a on occasions about smart citizen stuff, but how do they play into this? These are all these things come together. It's not like there's a, it's just the technology. Otherwise, we would have had VR back in 1995 when it was supposed to be in every household for Christmas. Here we are, 30 years later, and it's in hardly any households. To be fair, these things are not simply driven by the technology. Are driven by that combination of human uptake, human adaptability, yeah. adoption, the environment in which the context in which we're trying to make this happen, the economic value chain the whole, of the whole thing, the law, the legal perspectives and the policies. Even interesting now, moratorium, six-month moratorium on AI development. That's a, not even official, but you can imagine if it became official. And most of the time, in my view, the technology is advanced irrespective of whether there's a moratorium or whether there's a law that's stopping it. Think of stem cells and stuff like that. Really, a whole variety of countries and scientists and places progressing, which is why I'm somewhat against a moratorium on AI. can't, I guess, won't happen. I really like that explanation. I think you touched on it perfectly. It's, is that it's categorized in this way, if I'm not mistaken, because it's not about the use cases and the sectors essentially that would use it. It's more that AI is a tool that can, you can leverage to do whatever you want with it. I want to touch on literally everything you talked about just now. So let's start with ChatGPT. It's the hardest thing to talk about right now. But in certain circles, definitely in yours and mine, AI has been a topic that's been discussed for a very long time, basically since 1950, as you were just saying. But I think really what has made it come to the fore for everyone, magnified its popularity, if you will, is the launch of ChatGPT. It's, I think, now the fastest growing social platform or app or whatever you would call it beating Facebook, Instagram, and everything else. And so overall, before we go into the moratorium and everything else you touched on, 
what are your thoughts on the work OpenAI has done on ChatGPT? And very importantly, how do you think this is catalyzing the work that other big tech companies are doing, like Google, like Meta, et cetera, to essentially fast track their investments and developments of artificial intelligence? Yeah, mind blowing. And I think we all have to be a little honest with this, other than the people that actually probably worked on it. <laughs> Why do I say that? Because you're always going to be, oh, well, we envisaged that. Yeah, we all envisaged it. Generative AI is not a new thing. But the speed at which we arrived at that level of generative AI is it's, pretty it's remarkable. Exactly, and I'm not yeah. talking for the layman who still doesn't necessarily know what it is, right? Other than a line on the BBC News or something. But yeah, for all of us, in 2017 and 2018, I remember talking a lot about Zero about DeepMind, about all the work that was happening with Go at the time, further iterations on that. And I remember the interim between that and ChatGPT, there was a lot of debate on whether DeepMind was actually advancing, whether it actually was making any progress. It kept saying it was, just like we've heard so much about Google Brain and all the other systems. It kept saying, yeah, we're going to be coming out with this. We're going to be doing that. And there was a little bit of disbelief. It was a bit like reading more of it back in the day on robots, 20 years. <laughs> He's talking about third stage robots in 2018. And you're like, really? But then it happens. And then you're like, wow, that's crazy. And I think it took us by surprise. We have to all admit if we, I haven't spoken to Ray Kurzweil about it, maybe I should, but everyone I know, and I'm talking about scientists, and my network in labs, yeah, in the last three months or four, whatever it is, um, testing it, right, in some form, and getting the students to test it, testing it on multiple. I've tested it on probably 40 different potential usage, use cases because you have to, to see what are the boundaries, what are the limitations, what's the accuracy level, how useful is it really, what is the level of, fakeness together with the level of reality is only as good as the universal data that it's based on and its ability, which is a remarkable part about it, to actually perceive to a certain degree a reason, which we expect it to do, and actually come up with things that are pretty, generally speaking, pretty good. So I asked it to produce, for example, a 15-week course multimedia course, X-media course, actually. And I gave it, whatever, six or seven different ideas. And I asked for the reading list. And then, whatever number of minutes, produced a 15-week course that was very logical. The actual theming of each of the weeks was really good. And some of the, de the short detail was good. Obviously, it's not going to build all the content for me. But the outline, the syllabus, as a syllabus, was really good. The readings were more than useful. Yeah, some were obvious, some I'd never heard of. So I went to look at them, some were useless, but some of them were outstanding. So that's one case. And I did, I told you, I've probably done 50 or something. I got my students to use it in their final exam. I got them to write um, an analytical piece 
and then to take the inputs from their own piece and put them into ChatGPT and see what came up. And they were quite different, to be fair. Some of the human part was better and some of the GPT stuff was better, to be fair. And so, yeah, I mean, it's an issue in education because it's not even plagiarism because each piece is unique. That's why we're looking at all this because it has so much meaning for so many areas. But yeah, I think it's extraordinary. GPT-4, which came out March the 14th, so less than a month ago, we've been playing with in the university. And that's supercharged, more accurate. This is what we're seeing so far. There's all this work going on, what's called memory GPT and auto GPT and all these other areas around this. There's so many developments at the moment. So how does this fit in? How is it going to be linked to the metaverse? How is it going to fit in with this technology? How is it going to fit in with this platform? And so on and so forth. And this is on its own is one thing, but it's collaboration or merge with others, or it's fueling of other types of platforms and its ability to actually shift the way we think about investigative policing or things like that. That's quite remarkable, to be fair. The people that I'm talking to that are working with it, like Elizabeth Strickler and people like that, are actually teaching it and getting their students to do lots of work with it, as I have been. That's I think one would say, I'm really trying to understand its breadth and depth and its ultimate application arena. I'm guessing from your tone then and overall admiration of ChatGPT that you're not a fan of the moratorium. And just for clarity's sake, when we say moratorium, we're talking about the more than 1,000 experts that recently essentially signed an open letter saying they recommend or would be hopeful of a six-month pause on a six-month moratorium, if you will, on future development investments on artificial intelligence while we have a better understanding of what it can do and set some guardrails ethically and in a regulatory sense. A lot of people point to Elon Musk, who is someone who is spearheading this effort while obviously having invested in OpenAI in the beginning and having companies like Tesla, SpaceX using technologies with AI, just not language models. What are your thoughts on this overall and the reason behind it? And also, what do you think is a better solution? Since obviously you don't agree with it, what would you say is a better solution? Well, I've read all the debate, obviously, and continue to read the debate because it's going on. I'm not one of the thousand people. I understand the logic. We've been having a discussion now for years on AI and ethics. There are ongoing teams, there are commissions, there's a European commission working on it. There are experts from all fields all over the world working on it. And yes, occasionally we get some progress. There are actually, the EU has written up certain new rules to, and so yeah, there are ways of dealing with this. And I think we're capable of monitoring and to a certain degree, controlling the continuing development of generative AI without there being a moratorium. The slight irony in Elon Musk, of all people, given that he was one of the first investors in ChatGPT. And so <laughs> I have this view here that A, 
I like to see things progressing at whatever speed they progress. Part of my whole life as a futurist because I'm always trying to understand potential timelines. I'm always trying to understand, and I spent half my life talking to developers, designers, creators, inventors, patent developers, and so on, so of understanding what they're doing really means, how it can be applied, how it can merge, how it can hybridize it, and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, I'm against stopping that, and you can argue whether that's progress or not progress, but I feel like it's too big an opportunity for people who are not party or even in agreement with the moratorium in any form, pressing ahead, as I mentioned earlier, as we saw with stem cells and everything else, and literally taking it to a level and gaining market benefits, maybe dominance. I don't know, there's this bit within me, a bit between sour grapes, people who didn't actually manage to do it, and the other people who are like, oh my God, this really could, we could end up with the singularity earlier. We could end up with really troublesome problems. Well, we can anyway. Mm-hmm. This would be a bit like saying, okay, if we're, we've got a moratorium on self-directed and created intelligence tools, why should we not then stop the development of molecular machines or self-assembly or, I don't know, all these other processes that are going on, particularly within the medical profession and so on. There are so many new technologies going on. But where do you draw the line in the sand? Exactly. (laughs) As we've seen, it'd be like, okay, 3D printing. Should I stop all 3D printing because 3D printing can now manufacture guns and synthetic drugs? And, you know, I mean, no. But I can take anything pretty well, any of the developing technologies and even unthinkable technologies, which in the near future will be happening, and say, well, all of these should be stopped. We oh, I mean, let's not panic. Because six months from now, this is a question, are we going to know any more six months from now? Yeah, we'll know a bit more. And yes, we can put in certain a black box equivalent so we can understand what it's doing and we can understand how to stop. But, you know, well, I haven't talked about AGI, but have we stopped developments in AGI? No, we haven't, have we? It's not something we've even thought about. In the last 20 years, there have been something like 80 actual platforms developed for AGI, of which about 49 are currently in use on something like 60 to 70 AGI projects. It's not like nothing's going on. It's just that we don't hear about it necessarily unless you're in the field or until something so dramatic happens. Now we're talking about generative AI in public. We're talking about generative AI for the last... 30 years. Right. So I'm, I'm not really pro this moratorium. Is my reasoning good or bad? Maybe it's gut feel. Maybe it's intuition, which is a big part of a futurist work. 
Um, and that's something you can't teach a machine. So that's a key thing. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I do want to touch on the ethics in more detail, but uh, I think something that I hear a lot that we talked a little bit about is the fear mongering that surrounds AI, if you will. Some people are saying, oh, take a six month pause. But the argument I've heard from a few people in the industry is that they, they want a six month break on everyone else, but not themselves while they work on their technology, their software, their whatever implementation model of AI, which of course everyone would deny. But more than that, the fear around AI, if you look at it more broadly for quite a while now has been around automation and essentially that it's coming for your jobs. This has been an ongoing point against technology and technological advancement for some time now. And while we've been talking about automation coming for delivery jobs, for cashiers, for truck drivers, now what we're talking about with ChatGPT is that no, it's actually coming also for copywriters and TV producers and lawyers to some degree and coders. What are your thoughts on what this means for the future of work? As I know you've done some work on this. And also, I want to hear on your thoughts regarding the use of AI to remove some of these gaps that are created because of AI, making use of the technology itself to remove the divide. Okay. You mentioned uh, the whole issue of jobs. Of course, it's a concern. It's a concern anyway. It's not suddenly woken up in because of GPT or something, McKinsey and everybody else. There's a massive report, some massive research. They all have the figure between 40 and 50 or 40 and 60 percent of the reduction in the workforce by 2030. But equally, if you look at the types of jobs, the number of new professions created between 2010 and 2020, there's hundreds of them. If we look at the new types of jobs being created now, between 2020, 2021, and 2030, yeah, the no, problem is the different types of skill needs, which AI can actually help us considerably. It can help us in training, whatever, as can the metaverse and everything else that we're working on currently. HMR, human machine resources, as the shift to that from HR. And our ability to understand a better utilization of intelligent assets, us as human intelligence and machine intelligence, should not be considered as part of the same game where we should be looking at job descriptions for machines as well as we do for humans, where we should yeah. be looking at allocation of machines and humans in parallel or alternatively singularly that they should be evaluated on potential performance, on costs, all the other things that we look at, effectiveness, efficiency, and so on, that we should be looking at functionality of the two, what is the best way of you, best bet, what's the best way of losing them, projecting that over a period of time, whether it's short, medium, or long-term utilization. Maybe we don't invest now. We invest in the medium term for this or whatever. Right? These are all things that we have to understand. And yes, the, from a knowledge perspective, cobots and humans and machines are and will produce new forms of knowledge. They will be very imaginative. Yes, it seemed like sci-fi to many of us. Yes, they will create completely new ways of thinking about stuff. 
which is perfectly okay, by the way, they will find ways around emotion because we don't need to have, it's not all about the soul in everything that happens between the way we understand things emotionally or can react and communicate with one another. It's about whatever architecture, and I mean human architecture and machine architecture, permits that. So people are right from a neural perspective. We certainly don't about how memory works and how consciousness works. But then you can mimic that. You can simulate to get the same response. For example, I was watching a performance by a Georgia Tech robot musician. And the interesting thing about that robot musician is that it, it looks at you the whole time and it relates to you and you really believe that it's, which is how it engages you with the performance, that it's human. And the way it does that is by using a camera and AI. Camera takes a, a microsecond shot of you and your emotion, and the AI analyzes that and sends back a mimicked, reaction, physical reaction within the robot that mm -hmm. makes you think it understands you and is with you and is smiling at you. We'll see it in so many ways and so many different aspects that it's just part of life. And we have to expect and accept. No one's complaining when they're using this, that it got rid of a load of people who went around looking after telephone boxes, did it? ATMs, right? ATMs, ATMs. Example. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This issue, maybe we talk about meta-economics and Society 5.0 and the human development and our roles and how much we work and life work balance and everything else. Maybe there should be far more discussion on those areas than there is on Maybe there's these completely new set of concierge jobs, which we've seen, right? Things growing and changing. Maybe we shouldn't be looking at the social, um, cultural development aspects that are running in parallel with this. And where can the new jobs come that underpin that for lesser creative or lesser educated, whatever, however we want to frame people that we think are going to lose their jobs. Yes, coders, I'm sure, are really unhappy because, yes, there is a likelihood that we won't need traditional coders anymore. But, you know, there have been, in my lifetime, thousands of jobs that have disappeared. Right, exactly. Right, that's just a fact of life. Actually, it's interesting if you go to developing countries because you see a lot of the things that don't exist as jobs in developed countries anymore. Maybe handmade shoes are a good thing or tailors or stuff that people, we just don't use anymore. So maybe this is a, an opportunity to shift some of the thinking, the cultural values. Maybe it's a question of redefining our overall human values in relationship to these developments. Maybe it's an opportunity rather than it being completely detrimental and killing everything.
maybe that's where the thought should go rather than the other way around. That's a personal view, of course. But. I think it's about whether you're a glass half full or empty kind of person, isn't it? But I remember, I think it was the first lecture of yours that I ever heard six or seven years ago. And you were talking about all the potential jobs that would exist essentially from AI and other developments in technology, emerging technologies. And I think that for every job that we will lose, we will at least, if not 10, gain one job back, let's say. So an AI assistant or a concierge or whatever else it might be. And what this really made me think of was a potential future where instead of people having jobs for the financial incentive for basically making money, we would actually simply work for the enjoyment and maybe betterment of society. So the AI or automation or whatever else takes care of the day-to-day -day basic needs of humanity, farming, whatever else, and we just do the more nuanced or human-centric work. I do think it's about the filter you use to look at the world, isn't it? Especially when it comes to technology, if you want to be afraid or if you want to be you know, hopeful. Yeah, it goes back to what I'm saying is there's too much emphasis on the detrimental aspects. And I don't mean the directly positive or negative aspects, because that's easier to analyze. These are the benefits, these are the... But I'm thinking more from the adjacent impact areas. And some of those have nothing to do with technology, but they're to do with societal change, with environmental development, with policy with how governments are run and all these types of things, which are very different to just looking at the direct influences and direct impact. In many ways, we're trying to maintain the same societal structures, even though we know society is different. That's why we get frustrated because there's confusion, there's contradiction on every level. There's more fear because of jobs and all these things. And we know that society is changing and is different and transforming rapidly in front of our eyes. But in my view, we're not doing sufficiently to really shift those norms. And that's partly to do with who has control, who has control over society, whether it's political systems or economic systems or whatever, the control mechanism. I think what's been interesting in the last decade or so has been the whole aspect of decentralization. So we talk about GPT you know, form having being a decentralized tool, which it is, which is why we see the metaverse as a decentralized tool. And a lot of the arguments, yeah. these are similar, right? We have within the EFF with Electronic Frontier Foundation, where we've been looking at frequencies and we have to think about the back end of all this stuff, the architecture that's behind them, right. you know, the internet, who does it belong to? It belongs to us. We don't want to lose that. The metaverse, who does it belong to? We want it to belong to us. We don't want to belong to Meta or anybody else. We want it to still belong to us. So we have that frequency as a developed, the actual distribution system, these communication systems are still with us, with the public. These are the aspects that we're concerned about is, yeah, GPT, all these things can get in the wrong hands. There's no question. A lot of work I'm doing at the moment is looking at what it can do from a for criminals, of course, and we had all the issues because we weren't advanced enough on things like the dark web. 
And with the metaverse, we're looking at the deep verse, the dark verse, and all these other areas that are happening. Yes, generative of AI does create an issue. It will create an issue around cryptography, particularly when you put it together with post-quantum cryptography and things like that. Yeah, no question. And no question we have to study it. Well, why can't we continue to study it? Why do we need to stop doing something to take time to study it? It's more to do with that. It's not that I'm actually not an ethical person or not worried about the ethics or not worried about the tragedy of all this or millions of things I'm I work with in the interior. Can you think of how many worries that we have with all the new things that have happened over the last two decades? Of course, hundreds of them, from a drone to a damn IED that we've never heard of. But by the same token, there are so many positive things it can do. We've got to remember that. You raise a great point, and I do want to expand on skills and education. But first, I think to step back, one of my points of intrigue, I suppose you would call it, is that despite the vast amount of information we have available to us right now, obviously with the internet, but ChatGPT and everything else, how much misinformation is out there? And I'm not really talking about disinformation and fake news and conspiracy theories and what have you, but people who refuse to accept basic accepted facts, and this can range from the extremes like the flat earth theory people, to just having a debate where someone refuses to accept something that you could easily prove from looking at a scientific book or obviously Google. And to me, this extends not to ChatGPT and other generative AI, which as we're seeing more and more, obviously, is prone to making mistakes, but being so confident with it, misstating the fact, but acting like it's a fact. And this can actually obviously worsen things because then people will take it for gospel and not go do more research. So to some degree, obviously, it's about basic education. I remember one of the first things we learned in undergrad was how not to plagiarize, but more importantly, how to find good academic sources and respected articles and what have you. So my question really is, how do you foresee things changing? Obviously, given your unique perspective as both an educator and someone who is actually working at the forefront of this technology. Is AI going to be a force for good, if you will, or is it just going to worsen this information divide or gap if people don't learn to differentiate between accurate and inaccurate or bad information? I'll answer your question from the back board because I am concerned about fake news and stuff like that. That's a totally different conversation. But the first part of this, so we're, we're all within this framework of social engineering. So education comes into the other aspects you were talking about. Yes, you're right that as a professor, I should say no Wikipedia, and I should say absolutely no blogs. But you need to go to academia or wherever it is, Google Scholar or wherever, and pull right. out some scientific article. And this is interesting thing because I actually got, when I was writing my doctorate, I was older, so I was in a completely different place to the person who was 30 or whatever they are, 32. And by then I was really well established, had a fantastic network of people. I was highly literate and got written books and papers and all sorts of stuff. And I was very aware of where I could search for 
information, of course, and build off of information as a futurist because you're doing so much research that relates to things like weak signals and disruptions and all these types of things. You get used to scanning in a very different way, plus I had systems for scanning. So I used my scanning system. It was very different. The point was that when I broke it down by scientific articles and the 30 interviews I did with people who are actually driving this world and whereby I could get first-hand direct information today rather than a, you know, a paper that was written two or three years ago and just got published. Or I was looking at a paper from 2008 or something, which had a lot of validity to it, but needed to be seen in the context of what Clay Shirky or someone was talking about from social engineering. And what I realized that telling my students to not read blog was completely wrong. I knew that before, but the justification for it was because, yes, they should be careful which blogs they read, although I'm not the determinant of that, honestly, but, and I can recommend, because I'm teaching them the types of blogs they should read, which I think are as important as scientific papers. Now, there's always a debate, but I mentioned Clay Church, I could mention anybody, but all the people that I deal with all have blogs. There's, that's part of the cause. Or alternatively, I would say, what? Go to Georgia Tech Expressive Machinery Lab and see what the heck they're doing, or go to MIT's, go to Patty Mice or somebody and see what her department's doing, because then you're going to be able to see the new things that are happening that are not yet written about but are in development, and that's interesting. And so there are all these other ways of garnering that knowledge and information. And I do understand that we still need to maintain an academic resilience and whatever. I mentioned earlier that we, in a much different type of society, but I mentioned decentralization and these types of areas, and that's in everything, whether it's in thinking or whether it's in technological development or whatever, right. we are now in a very different place whereby maybe, maybe that's frightening. It's frightening for corporations, that's for sure. Just like Uber was frightening for taxis. Airbnb was right. frightening for hotel. So yes, we're in a situation whereby we're seeing a lot of bottom-up movement, and once something comes out, once people can analyze it or understand it, unless it's as good as Coca-Cola recipes, everyone's going to be hacking and doing it and changing it and playing with it. And see, I come from the perspective that's powerful the cause, but I'm not sure that's how industrialists see it. So it goes back to what I said earlier. In this whole game, the issue is less around the technology and ethics and more around the power play. And who has governance and who has the ultimate power. And they'll be the same with jobs in many ways. And or any other area where we're seeing these massive changes where AI is having a direct impact on societal change. It'll be it's a bit like companies who didn't want to bring in adaptive manufacturing 
or adaptive systems from what happened. They found themselves miles behind. Because ultimately, at the end of the journey, you have to work out when it's viable to do so, when it's salient. So today, you'll see a piece of research. 97.3% of CEOs believe they need to have an adaptive manufacturing system. Of course, it's the way it is. Point about education, I actually personally advised a new learning system, which is about based on the augmented learner and based on the combinations of foresight, multi, multimedia learning, so from pedagogical systems. And so, yes, I totally believe in that. I believe in certain aspects like bringing in transdisciplinary courses. If we're going to have transdisciplinary technologies, we need the humanities. Where does philosophy fit in? We need theory and philosophy to fit into mechanical engineering. We need material science to fit in with mechanical engineering or civil engineering. We need all these things to come together. Because ultimately, Smart City, which I would think is a fantastic example of where all these things have to come together, is a real guideline for transdisciplinary learning, transdisciplinary courses, transdisciplinary syllabi. And so I work on that and I've created a number of new courses over the years at different universities. And I think that's critical. And I think that when I look in that, there are areas we can work with optimizing learner potential, much more work on learner analytics, a lot of aspects around that self-managed environment. So whether that's a university per se, what's the future role of a university if there is one, the whole issue of blended learning, that. And, but more about co-creation, bringing machines, and I don't mean physical, but it can be physical machines, cobots and stuff, but bringing in agents, AI agents, to work with me to create new knowledge. I think that's critical. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Now, how we temper that or how we manage that within the pedagogical structure is for us to work out new pedagogical structures. We can't just say, no, you can't have that because it doesn't fit into the way we do tests and exams and whatever. That's pathetic. All these things have to run in parallel. And I think that part of this conversation is about when you break these things down individually, it's quite difficult to see an ecosystem in which they all function. But actually, everything we've talked about has to fit into a generative ecosystem as well, socio-cultural, policy, environmental ecosystem at the same time. And that's being self-generated in a different way. Self-managed university or self-managed policing per se is a completely new structure, but has a, certainly has a role to play and certainly has a whole possibility and potential behind it. And we see good examples of that, of robots, robots in firefighting, all sorts of things. And AI now for security. We don't only use people for trying to crack, track and crack and whatever. Investigation, we're using AI for investigation. We're using new forms of neuroscience together with forensic, neuroforensics. We, we had all the security area around cyber forensic, but now we're moving into new formats of forensics. And so, Really, what's critical, I think, here is we need to stand back and look at the integrated 
ecosystem for all of this, rather than just say, well, AI has gone wild. Of course, it's gone wild within the traditional, a more traditional ecosystem, but not necessarily if we see it from an overall decentralized ecosystem where it's power for the cause. I think that makes perfect sense. And that's a place for us to move away from the current technologies, I think, and move ahead a bit. We discussed the current developments and state of technological advancement as it stands in quite a bit of detail. But now I'd like to go further ahead. What I would love to do is for everyone to basically put on their futurist hats, if you will. You mentioned that you often look 50 to 20 years ahead. So when we're talking about the currently emerging technologies, and as you said, even the ones that are no longer emerging, they're the past that stage, the growing stage. What are the technologies that you are most intrigued by, that you think have the most potential for growth or for making an impact in the not-so-distant future? From an interest perspective, I mentioned earlier that I believe in these parallel developments. So I'm never really looking at the technology simply, I need to understand it, but simply from the technological perspective, I'm looking at what it does for society. I suppose that's my role. And I think within that, some of the areas I'm particular, and let's talk about areas first because I understand the technologies. Without any question, human augmentation is a big one for me. So yes, I'm very interested in that in every area, whether it's looking at from cyborgs or transhumans or posthumans, or even the augmented learner. What does that mean from the perspective of assisted technologies or assisted environments or BCI, particularly in brain implants and all those else. So I've seen a lot. I look at a lot of things around multi-agent machine cognition and things like that, because I don't, I can't see the augmented learner without these areas of operation, these areas of augmentation. I look at what are augmented and embodied agents and all the work that's happening in that area. And the way it's springing up is adaptable, autonomous, hybridized, and uh, situational and, and social and so on and so forth. And what they've meant, one of the aspects of my interest in this is what actually, how does it actually shift our concepts and contexts? So what's the reconceptualization and recontextualization of our world? So when I look at something like social, I'm not just thinking of it from the social network perspective, some social communication on what it happens to be. I'm looking at what that actually does. So how does that shift our everyday lives? How we interrelate with one another? What communication systems do we use? How does that impact our ability to work? How does that impact our ability to gain knowledge and information and so on and so forth? And you take something like social, which is a very good platform in that sense, and you begin to understand it. Our dating, right, has shifted, and mine personally, but most people I know. Accumulation of news, our ability to communicate directly with famous people. Obviously, I do a lot with gaming, gamification, some of these areas. So when I analyze these types of things, I begin to understand what is a transactional space, not just from 
whether that's a financial transactional space, what does it mean in friendship? What does it mean in communication? What does it mean in identity? Which is a massive area going forward. Multiple identities, how we see ourselves, you think about the metaverse, how we project ourselves through avatars, do they shift this type of variance? So the, to me, the technology per se is interesting. So when I talk about collective open intelligence, it's a massive area because I believe it is, but it's more about what we do with the intelligence and how we apply it and where we apply it and who are the beneficiaries of it and how it improves our well-being, societal well-being, then actually I want to know the rules around it because they will have an impact on the benefits and otherwise. I need to know the tipping points. What are the key things, what are the must-haves to drive this? But some of the things I'm looking at around, I'm talking about transdisciplinarity, but that brings with it a whole load of areas. And that's maybe part of this whole thing, neurorobotics, things that we don't normally talk about, bioengineering, what's happening there, massive things, which, again, AI is critical to that. It's bioengineering. Molecular nanotech, things like mind-to-mind, -mind, life extension, brain implants. All these areas are critical to what I first mentioned, which was human augmentation. And these will all have an impact on identity. When we talk about re-engineering the human and re-genetic engineering the human, design of babies and stuff like that. How does that impact basic Jungian thought on our structures? And these are all critical aspects. I don't think we can see any of this in a singular point. It's all integrated. So I'm always looking at these overarching themes, I suppose you call them. I said, I mentioned smart city, an easy one. But there are things like urban development, things like spatial intelligence, information, or urbanism and stuff like that, that have a whole new role to play in our lives that we need to understand because that's where the changes occur. The technologies are a driver for that. But when I can adopt a designer baby, that shifts the family is. So it's those changes, those I call them reconceptualization or recontextualization of the way we live. These are the things that matter to me because ultimately, whether we like it or not, over a period of time, we maybe are not noticed all the time, but those things are the things that happen. So it's easy to talk about something like how banking's changed, how cyber currencies and all the structures around that and what that meant and how it's operating or not operating, how it's working, how we use them, where it came from second life and how Bitcoin grew out of all that. And yeah, we can do all that. But ultimately at the end of the day, what has that done for the way we transact? Is it shifted transaction more towards bartering? So that's the type of thing that I want to see because if I talk about emerging issues, they're the things that I want to follow. And all these technologies somehow fit into that or drive those new 
ways of thinking about or new structures. That's my, my way of looking at it. Obviously, at the end of the day, people are developing emotional machines, which I think is phenomenal, by the way. And yeah, I think that would change our lives. And the way we think about machines and the way we deal with <clears throat> mutual intelligibility, our ability to understand one another, um, communicate, our ability to co-produce, co-analyze. So yes, all these things add. I can't not talk about the metaverse because any question is happening and it really depends on how it's going to happen and what it means from the basic level of is it a game or a multiverses of games, which I don't think so, or is it just multiverses of the basic internet in terms of shopping and, or concerts, live concerts, whatever. I mean, yes, it is. Huh. There's a lot more going on beyond all of that, which is critical. And I'll touch on one of them because I know it's an area that is of interest to everybody. And that goes back to the whole thing of social engineering that we talked about. Deep fakes. So there's not a better place when you're dealing with identities that aren't necessarily real or otherwise. There's different areas we're seeing at the moment on that side of things like counterfeiting total organizations that don't exist, all that stuff's easy. But here I'm talking about identity assassination and murder <laughs> in the metaverse. Here I'm talking about the ability of generative modeling and generative AI that can reconstruct our verses and our universes across time all the time and lead to completely revamped areas at any given time. And that's sort of interesting. What's happening with evidence tampering? What's happening with literally social engineering that we've seen as totally different types of people and a lot of it when we talk about identities is not necessarily taking on a human avatar as a human identity. It can be any identity. It can be a pigeon for that matter. It doesn't really matter. So these things are complex. And then to understand how we're going to interrelate all these things and play with them. Gamers are going to do better because they're more used to it. Non-gamers are going to be lost for time, but when they believe they can get their shopping cheaper, I'm sure they go. If you look at the level of ability for simulation, for training, for everything else in 3D environments, it's unbelievable. And living in a 3D environment, the level of immersion, the level of sense of belongingness, the sense of what we call personal ambience, this ability of what we feel in any given situation, our ability to be engaged and interact is going to be incredible. Yeah, I don't know whether by 2025 we're going to be spending one hour a day there, five hours a day, but you can take any projection you want. I think it will be by 2035 the new internet because there's no reason why you wouldn't actually transition. It's just different structure, 3D rather than 2D structure. If you look at the 3D games at Roblox, there are hundreds of them. The other day I was playing with some of them, playing in Neon City, playing with avatars that are completely different types of things, thinking about how metapunks and metapunks will be in the future and what it's all going to look like. And it's really fun if you've been into Decentraland or 
Fortnite in sandbox or any of these. But they're fun to see what, how far we've got because it's all in development. There are thousands and thousands of developers. And somehow that will be aggregated and something will come from. And will it be exactly as we think? Probably. But that's a technology that affects all of us and is critical. Some of these other technologies I mentioned, I talked about earlier, like cognitive machinery and stuff, we'll all use it, we'll all be using it, we'll all cybernetic organisms, these things are being developed, they're all happening. Molecular machines are happening. They're a very low-level usage at the moment because we're trying to understand them. So they will happen. We won't necessarily always, unless they become a household name like AI, or as important, we won't necessarily think about them. They're things that happen in the background. Nanomanufacturing will absolutely shift our whole field of manufacturing and create new industries and new products and so on and so forth. No question. That's happening. And so we're seeing this already, some of these robotic processes and automated nanomanufacturing processes that are creating things. Quantum's coming in. Exocomputing, which is happening this year or should happen this year, if Sandia Labs complete their process, is shifting our whole ability of computing massively. I don't need to go into all the details. And I think that these new intelligent tools that we're working with, cognitive machinery and stuff, they are fundamentally shifting how we're going to go in the future. And of course, I have to pay attention to all of them. But some of those are things that happen. Just have some people use them for art. And suddenly we think, oh my God, we can do that with it. So read my next book. But yeah, so a lot of important stuff, but put it into context. You touched on so many different technologies. Some of it, I'm not very familiar with, to be very honest. Some of it is obviously very much in development. And some of it, I think, could go in any given direction. The metaverse is the perfect example of that. I see I've spoken to quite a few people who are very much involved in this field. And it's obviously the VDification of the internet, if you will. Instead of reading it, we would be in a virtual environment to some degree or the other. But I think a lot of other potential side effects would come out of this specifically. So you mentioned deep fakes, you mentioned visual avatars. But if you think about these visual interaction, it's going to be very difficult for us to fully authenticate a person because our models of authentication at the moment are completely different, right? The authentication technology really needs to adapt. Face ID would need to be completely changed. There's already filters that you can use to basically fool face ID. And so many of the other ones are already defunct. I know that Anytime a new type of cryptography or authentication comes about, there will be someone who comes up with a way to go behind it. But I think that's where the metaverse to me becomes problematic, at least where with the current authentication technologies. Yeah, neuroforensics having a bit will have a big impact. And that's why we're seeing things like brain prints. Now, a lot of this is a matter for legislation as well. So... Can we use certain things? Because this can go in another direction. That we can start to believe that <laughs> criminal intent, something we've been talking about for many years, is it inbred? Is it a social development? Is it predominant in certain groups of people? And so, yeah, we've got to be careful how we deal and work with this type of 
new authentication processes. Mind reading is one of those. So that's a perfect segue for first to talk about Neuralink and BCI and how that relates to mind reading. This is one of the technologies I'm personally most fascinated with, essentially the Neuralink project that is co-founded by Elon Musk and aims to develop an implantable brain chip, brain computer interface or brain machine interface that basically allows us to speak to machines and to probably AI to some degree and then connect us to other digital devices, I suppose sort of like what a wearable would do right now. What are your thoughts on this type of an advancement? How realistic do you think it is? How difficult would it be to create machine interface with our minds and to essentially allow a machine to read our minds? So mind reading to me, it's very difficult. I'll tell you why it's difficult. I'm very keen on Neuralink succeeding because it's an area I'm exceptionally interested in. I've done a lot of work with wearables and BCI and stuff like that for years. And so Neuralink, the mind-to-mind, really is about a chip that monitors the moving, really, of thousands of neurons. And supposedly, it will be able to read our mind or allow us to communicate mind-to-mind. And it has something like, I don't know, 3,000 electrodes that are attached through these, I think they're wires, but they call them flexible threads. Wires. It's a bit like the matrix. This is the matrix in real. We are seeing the metaverse in real. <laughs> so our Stevenson and Gibson and Neuromancer, all these things like Ready Player One and Snow Crash and Philip K. Dick and... <laughs> Electric sheep are all coming to reality. And it's fantastic, isn't it? It's fantastic. Minority Report, which is much later than that, of course, was in 2000, I think, the movie particularly, is already there. We don't even think about it anymore. It's more or less there. But all the mind-to-mind stuff, there's a problem with that, with BCI in general, and that's that we don't necessarily know sufficiently about our neurological and cognitive systems in our in real world. So the question is, do you have to create the same, which is a big argument, or can you bypass our true neurological processes? I work with a guy called Rex Jung, who's a neurologist, one of the most famous neurologists actually. I work with him because he's the probably one of the greatest experts in creativity, understanding the neurological aspects of personal creativity, development. So he worries that. So, what the mind of man is about is really collecting those memories and thoughts that are deep inside of us. Because that's how we work. Our consciousness is our present. It's what's happening now between you and I. Okay? It has relevance because part of what we're doing in the present is critical that we understand one another. But much of the feeding of that is our subconscious. 
because there's a history with putting things in. I'm talking to you about slow crash. And to remember Philip K. Dick. But as well, so it all comes from our subconscious. And then there's our unconscious. Our unconscious is stuff that we don't really know we know, but we know. They're some of the big things. And some of the underlying issues that we all have. But the critical thing is that to be able to get into that subconscious and unconscious, which is part of our memories, big part of our memories, is complicated. And so I think the verdict's out currently on mind to mind, but it'll happen. Okay, the verdict's out because in parallel we're working with neurology, we're understanding more and more. These things I mentioned earlier, they work in parallel, they drive one another. So I'm very hopeful because forgetting the pure mind to mind, there are some incredible things with BCI that we've done with blindness, we've done with paralysis. Already we're helping people with sensory stimulation that they didn't have. These are wonderful things. So yes, I'm very hopeful that it all comes together and we can take that medical aspect to it to a, to a totally different level. How do you foresee this coming to be? Is it going to be literally an interface, an auditory or visual interface? So there's basically a voice in your head or a heads-up display like Jarvis from Iron Man, something you see, or is it even a thought maybe like, if you're a visual or auditory person, you would get it in the same way. That's, I think, what I struggle with the most. Not so much how the machine would read our mind, but how we would get the input from the machine, if you will. Well, the question really is, is how do we partial this off? Doesn't implant, the question you're asking, doesn't implant have a, the equivalent of a screen? I don't mean the screen but a visual reading of what we're seeing, an audio reading of what we're seeing. Does AI provide that analysis from a cognitive, emotional perspective at the same time, which is what you're asking, right? How do we, how do we get that? The one thing is the production, the source, and the production of that. And the other thing is the distribution. What you're asking me is, how would this be distributed to other parts of our brain that read in microseconds or nanoseconds what we're seeing or hearing? And you're right to ask the question, because what we're seeing predominantly is the source and manufacturing part of it. Right. I feel like what we're not yet sufficiently familiar with is the interface. And I don't mean the production interface, the distribution interface. It's a bit like we spend our whole life talking about alternative energy. We never talk about electricity. They're obviously integrated, but they're separate things. And one, when I think about <clears throat> BCI a lot of the time, which is why I'm really happy with the, this whole area around stimulated sensory things is because there you, it's very concrete. I can see, I can hear, I can feel my leg. 
So you, what the answer to your question on that one, you know what the actual output is. The output's vision and so on. But when it's about the consciousness or cognitive aspects, it seems complicated. But it's only complicated because we don't yet fully understand how an implant looks or works. We talk about it from the operational perspective or how it can be linked into the brain, what it needs to connect to, which part of the cortex, which part of the hippocampus, whatever it has to work with. But we don't talk about, ultimately, at the end of the day, how we're going to receive. And do we receive it through the same, but an augmented version of the same way we receive that data now? But you don't want it juggling with your own consciousness. Is it integrated? It's a little bit of top of head thinking as we go through this. Bear with me, but it is an issue. It's simple. It's simple with communications. Okay, a hand implant. I'm sure you've seen the Swedish ones. Well, they are literally a hand implant. What are they giving you? The same as your watch wearable could give you, or your phone could give you. There's no cognitive data in that. Now we're shifting to something very different. And then you start getting into whole conversations around the soul <laughs> what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable and what we should be able to even consider in that context or talk about or whatever. These are big stories. They're not that simple to deal with. So, yeah, I agree with you. This is not there yet. But will we get there? Yeah, I think so. I'm sure you're aware of the theory that intuition is basically pattern recognition that our brains, that our unconscious mind uses to translate the exabytes of information that it gathers that doesn't necessarily go into the conscious mind. And then giving us this sort of gut feeling or intuition that tells us something that our conscious mind can actually accept. But basically that it's less spiritual, if you will, and it's more just very quick nanosecond response of information that is captured that our conscious mind can't understand because of our latent inhibition. That's a whole topic for a whole different discussion, I'm sure. But I think it makes me think about when you're connecting your mind essentially to a technology like BCI, which is going to potentially have access to your unconscious mind and the data that it gathers, which it can do things to, right? Now, the ideal scenario, of course, is that this is a positive thing. And I think what Neuralink is at least aiming to do is to give you information that you can access in a positive way. But what if this AI can have access to this information on its own, that it can basically fully capture this data and sense and do whatever it wants with it? Maybe it has negative aims or maybe it just corrupts this data so you can't access it. And I'm not talking about people hacking it or something, but basically it does something for itself using your brain data, especially if this potentially connects to other AI, right, that has access to this as well. Again, that's a whole different discussion for a whole different time, but I'm just curious your thoughts on this. How should we account for this? Should we think about this as we're creating these AI technologies like GPT-4 and 5 and whatever else? Um, when we're going more towards AGI, should we keep things narrow maybe and not give them that kind of computing power? This is all the ethical debate on it. I mentioned a black box earlier, you know, 
I wasn't joking when I said that. And what I meant by it was what, what should we allow and what shouldn't we allow it to do? But it's funny you talk about this from the intuition perspective, because that's sort of right. I have to determine, even coming to this interview, do you like me? So can I be open with you? Can I trust what you're doing with the information? Can I trust how you interpret the information? Or is this all about destroying my whole persona? <laughs> like, I mean, exaggerating. But, you know, we use it for everything all the time. Not maybe as robustly as that. But you imagine I get invited to speak on all sorts of stuff and I'm thinking, who is this? You know, why me? What have I done? <laughs> but we're always using, we do it for everything. And I think we feel... That's who we are, right? As humans. With time, growing confidence, rightly or wrongly, because clearly at some times we're wrong. Whether it's about relationships, you know, all sorts of things. But we are dependent on our, I don't like the word judgment, but in this context, judgment our ability to consider all the facts and points of view and different perspectives and good and bad and risks and all that. In seconds, this isn't in, like this is easy if I'm writing a strategic plan. If I meet someone in the street who, or an airport who I introduce himself and then says, by the way, it'd be really good to meet you to discuss blah, 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 blah. In that split second, I've got to make a decision. Do I actually receive a WhatsApp message from that guy or block him? Well, I think the AI is perfectly capable of making that decision. But do we want it to? But w why would it not have a blocking? Do we want to know everything that someone else thinks? Do we, want our, do we want time for our own thoughts? Do we want to feel, in some ways, is that a good thing? So when you put it into the health context, it's a really good thing. Blind people will see. Wow. That's crazy. But... I'm just telling you what a great guy you are, and I hate you. Is that a good thing? Our whole cognitive communication, right, is at, is at stake here. It's a reality. You said it perfectly, I think. We still don't have the full understanding of the sheer computing, the sheer quantum computing capabilities of the human brain. Because what our brains can do, it's not understood at the moment. We're miles away. We're miles away. Exactly. It's a developing field. So looking at it objectively, we know that this information is definitely gathered by our brain. The intuition information, if you want to call it. That's a fact. There's probably more information that our brains gathers that we don't actually know about or understand yet or have theories hypothesizing. But even the amount we know about if an AI would have access to this information, if it could transcribe this data, if you will, to some degree, that our conscious mind can't, then, so that's maybe more my question, should we block that part of our brain? Is this something that can even be done, given that we don't know about the brain? Can we really only have this real discussion about BCI once we're past this stage of understanding the human brain, once we fully understood the brain? Is BCI even realistic based on everything I just said? Yeah, no, I'm certainly in my lifetime. I'm not sure we will, but you're younger, maybe in yours. Um, 
No, I, I fully understand. I think it's really complicated. But there may be a breakthrough. That's what I always see with this. It's like the genome. There was a breakthrough. And I think in all of these things, it seems to me, think about the cell, understanding the cell. I was talking with a colleague of mine We've been working on this for years, actually at Georgia Tech. And he said, well, it's one thing we've never been on. About three days later, they had a breakthrough. That changed everything. The genome changed everything. I think within this, there'll be some, there'll be the eureka moment. Once you break that, it's really, it's much easier to move it on. I just don't think we found that eureka moment. I think we're still in the hard slog bit by bit. We do get them, I'm sure. I don't know enough about all of the neurological brain research that's been done. I know that, which I need for my own work. I mentioned earlier about this thing about AGI. I'm not, yeah. And I think I said there were like, there'd been these 84 cognitive architectures over the past few years or whatever, and that there were now projects going on. 60, 60 of these were being still used. But there's over a thousand, I don't really think what I said at the time, but there's over a thousand projects on AGI going on. Something will happen. It's, so I think you have to see it all. I'm a positivist, right? So I yeah, always then, see yeah. in that framework because that's what life's taught me. And then it slows because suddenly we have an answer to something and then it takes forever to move it to the next level. That's very true. It's a very non-linear, just as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. Absolutely. Okay, so while we wait for that information to come, we can step away from the micro and I think go more towards the macro. A topic you and I have discussed in great detail many times is smart cities. I think it's something that we could literally do a whole episode on and we should for the future. But I want to bring all of this, in a sense, together with smart cities and smart city technologies, especially as it relates to the future. As things stand, most of what we consider as smart cities at the moment are really smart city technologies where they take a, a technology or a type of technology or a sector of technologies, if you will, for a specific need and use that to excellence. So different cities do this differently based on their different needs. I think Amsterdam is a great example, for example, for smart mobility and transportation. London is one of the most CCTV-covered cities in the world, so I suppose you would call it a leader in security. India is a global leader in smart waste management because that's the key need that the country has. And of course, there's some examples where you have countries and cities that have multiple sectors and use cases. I think Singapore is always the best example. That's always given for multi-sectorial use cases of smart city technologies. But how do you think this is going to go forward. Do you foresee different groups of cities moving along these lines and continue to improve and excelling in their areas and then essentially sharing that knowledge with other cities who use it and implement it? Does this mean that, for example, Amsterdam should teach everyone else on transportation and London should teach everyone else on security? And we should have this sort of global cross-collaboration of different key metropolitan leaders, or is there a different model for this? I thought London already had taught everyone about CCTV cameras. <laughs> I can't go anywhere. My Amsterdam mobility is a bit odd because actually the systems they got, which are fantastic, by the way, are integrated systems. And it's because of a lot and all the other elements around that, parking problems and so on. 
that's an interesting idea though. But yeah, overall, my start point for all of this is the human. A city, I don't care if it's smart or not smart, but any city ultimately is for us and it's for our well-being. And if it's not for our well-being and progress, then there's something wrong with it. Right. Okay. Now, that's driven predominantly by two things. One, what is the city per se? That's made up of all the stakeholders in the city. What do they think, first of all, is the spirit, the soul of the city? What do they think it actually is? So, this is a big start point for any, whether it's a big current city or a new city. And what's its essence? What's its functionality? And somewhere like Austin, which the perfect city, it wasn't it? Came in Silicon Hills. <laughs> you can't afford to live there anymore. It was perfect in that way because it had an essence that I suppose you could say was keep Austin weird. There was a story yes. like, which is dramatic. And you could build around that by going weird in all different areas. So I worked on this. So I was a member of the original 2020 committee for Austin. I'm also part of the cultural division of the government to, to move forward. And so what we looked at was exactly that. So we wanted to keep Austin weird in some way or other. How do we do that? So we were lucky we took tech arts, okay, because they're really strong in the film and the music and everything else. And we were strong in tech. And we were able to say, how do we do this? So what part of the way of doing it is you have to get investment and you always have to get investment of the headquarters. No point in having Motorola, a little Motorola factory, because you're nothing applying for you people because the money's always go back to the headquarters. So you have to make this really somehow have a spirit that fits the city. There's some essential baseline really there if it's an existing city. And that enables growth, economic growth, and that enables the people of the city to feel a sense of belongingness and a buy-in to whatever that spirit or soul is. If you don't have that, you can just add bits on like every city has been doing, not very successfully. That's why we don't really get very integrated smart cities. But some of the ones you're mentioning, actually, in a way, they're not fully integrated smart cities, but they have elements on. But when you talk about a real smart city, you've got to start with what you're trying to achieve with that city, right? And then you start to talk about, this is a problem for me, and you look at analogies and you go, it's a computer city. <laughs> it's a software city. It's probably all these weird names for what it, how it's structured. What those really mean are the structure of the city. What do we want? Do we want a tech city? Do we want a culture city? Do we want a city? Do we want a financial city? What do we want? And we have to sort of work out how we fit that in. And that is a predetermined to what smartness means. Because if I want to be Atlanta and I want to have the, I want to be the second largest financial hub in the whole of the United States, which means I'm not just fighting with New York, but I'm fighting with LA and Dallas yes. and wherever. And therefore I've got to have certain conditions that make that happen. So my smartness, which the average person may not know, 
is in all the technology that drives the financial sector. And you're going to say, well, that's not a very smart city. You still do all the same. Mobility is exactly the same as it was. But it's highly smart. And it has the smartest people in finance working in it. And this is what's happening with cities because we're not, we haven't really seen, well, maybe in China because they're building new cities. But in most places, we don't really have that many new cities. If you look in UAE with a new city, Mazga, for example, it's not very exciting. Why? Because I have no idea what it's supposed to be. So there's nothing I can have my hat on to even say where it's smart. I can say there's little bits of it that are smart. They're clever. But not honest, not very smart. And so I think there is this value, as you pointed out at the beginning, to having sections that are smart to build from. Okay? Now, you live in the a city that actually isn't particularly smart. But what it is, is it has a really clear spirit. So when it begins to build its smarts, which would be around communications and so on and so forth, it'll be really smart, right? Because IoT and things like that, which are the key areas, some of the key areas, are, and though, you know, situation awareness, right? In a city like Dubai, that's perfect. Because that city is perceived already as an intercommunicational city. The buildings are all tied between themselves, the way the city is structured. What are they called? Sports city, video city, media city, I don't know, whatever the names they are, right? So there's a sort of like a, if you were drawing it, you'd have a hub, wouldn't you? And have all these, well, I'm sure they did, put all these bits around it. And you can see this, like, the perfect setup for a smart communications hub, which brings me back to something I talked about earlier, which was this issue of social cultural optimization. So what I think Dubai has done, even though it probably didn't call it that, has actually found a system that's moving towards social cultural optimization. And it's made the human in many ways, pretty centered to that. But it's done something that makes the human, so when I say puts the human at the center, the human at the center can mean many things. It can mean convenience, ease of movement, and all the things it can mean, feeling safe, a sense of luxury, a sense of belongingness, all those things. But that sense of belongingness can come from not just the facilities, but that social cultural optimization. So I can say, I can't even understand why you're going to build the next biggest building in the world. What's it mean? But it means everything, okay? It means everything when you create a city that the soul of the city is that we are or we're going to be the world's best at everything. That gives you an incredible sense of belongings. It's intrinsic. And people start saying, like they do in Austin, oh, they've been the best city in the planet. Because it's diverse, it's this friendly, it's that friendly, it's these are ease of movement. We now have urban density, which we didn't have before. I mean, it's fantastic. We have everything. 
And we have fun because we have music and film and everything else. What more can a human being want? I feel it. I'm allowed to feel weird and different. That's my sense of belongingness, right? I think the problem with most sinners is I haven't been able to achieve that. And that's why we, even if they are smart in certain ways, you've picked up on mobility because there are things we talk about. But, you know, I said Atlanta, because I think Atlanta's an incredibly smart city, like relatively, but it wouldn't be on anyone's list because no one's analysing what the smartness is. They're waiting for the autonomous cars. We've made that ourselves. If it doesn't have autonomous cars, then it's not a smart city. If there are no robots greeting us, it's not a, it's not a smart city. Right. But believe me, having the best medical system in the world that's incredibly smart would be a pretty good first take for me as to what a smart city is. And what's happened is we're looking at the sort of icing without actually looking at the cake. That's part of the issue in discussing a smart city. It's like... That's so true. That's a really apt analogy, I think. Yeah. So where do you want to put your investment? Do I want to put it in something that's going to make it look nice? Or do I literally want to have the best medical system in the world that's actually saving lives? Now we're talking about human-centric. So we have to think of these things really differently and we have to think of them in the relationship to the place. Well, that's different if you're building something new, fully new, which I'm doing in China or somewhere. But the ones that I've seen are lacking all that first bit. And that's why no one wants to move there. That makes perfect sense. I think you can have the most flashy technologies, but without a soul behind cities, the body doesn't really work, does it? No, doesn't. I don't think of the smartest thing that London ever did was stop cars driving into the center. But it was hell. No, it's not. It's not great, but it's getting better. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean? It's like, maybe because we've overused the word, maybe the intelligence part of it has got lost somewhere. I think so, because smart cities is such a subjective thing. Maybe we should have actually defined that as well, to some degree at least. But it's true because people can think of it as very different things. I've had discussions where people consider it to be more about sustainability and how it improves the environment and, and our overall living. But I think you're certainly right that you need to keep the user journey at the heart, at the core of any aspect of what we consider to be smart cities. What's the most critical thing of a city? Livability, right? Why do you, why do you move to, well, we move to a city because of a job, maybe. It's still going to be livable. I think London's a great example of this because so many people work in central London, but actually live in Strawberry Hill or Kingston or Richmond or wherever else in the boroughs of London, because I suppose they don't want to live in central. No, because the livability is pretty poor. Sociability is really good. Yeah. So livability basically is about agency, growth opportunities, contribution. Am I contribute, contributing? What else? Choice, freedom of choice of how I live, and um, health and wellness and safety. But that's, that was always, to me, a massive plus. I live in Rijeka. It's one of the safest places on the planet. 
how nice it is just to walk around and not think about being mugged. Okay, that's fair. I think you want to continuously step on the technology today. I think it's almost a theme for this episode. But no, I agree with the premise. I think we almost get lost in how flashy and sexy a technology is. But it's really about what are you going to do with it. It's about how are we going to leverage this to improve something, improve our lives and, and processes that we currently have. Don't misunderstand me. I love technology. I'm not. So on that note, I think this brings to my mind another important question, which is accessibility of technology. We talked about AI and smart cities and all these things, but some cities don't even have basic fundamentals like clean running water and accessible roads, right? We can call this developing and developed nations, the global north and south, whatever the political terminology might be. But when you look at the gap, the divide technologically is very prevalent and very obvious. And it's always been the case that the most affluent and the most fortunate people are the first to use these technologies. And the most affluent and the most prosperous cities are the first to be able to implement them as well. There's some argument, of course, to be made that, especially when it comes to new technologies like solar panels and desalination, the cost of installing them and the knowledge required for enabling their implementation has dropped significantly. So maybe it costs one-tenth of what it did uh, at its inception to, to install solar panels now. But I would argue that's for current technologies. And we don't know what the future technologies like AI and smart cities are going to do. If anything, they're going to at least initially further that divide, further that gap before things come together. Overall, what are your thoughts on this when you're talking about technological advancement, moving cities from where they are now to the future, whatever it is? Well, it's, not, it's not always about the technology. It's about the investment costs of that technology. It's about the actual, the other aspects of it. What's the infrastructure that has to fit into? If you have no existing infrastructure, the costs of... But on the other hand, this is a perfect <laughs> example of AI. <laughs> Is that an iPhone or a Samsung? That's my first question. It's an iPhone. So I disagree with your premise altogether. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I didn't mean it from that perspective. But, you know, the, 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 the phone, the mobile device, but everybody has one. Everybody maybe has a mobile communication device? Yeah, a mobile, have, mobile communication device. But they don't have an iPhone, for example, right? This device that has massive computing power compared to what old computers used to do, right? A smartphone like an Android, Samsung, iPhone, whatever, can do much more than an old school flip phone could, right? Hey, they're very cool at the moment. Be careful, they're trendy. <laughs> You know, an old school flip phone, right? Like the ones with the numbers on them and not the touch screen. Let's put it a different way. You can invest and buy the most advanced drone that has ever existed to do all your work that you want with it. If you don't have 5G or even 4G really, but if you don't have good telecommunication capabilities, this device is almost useless outside of a very small range. So you're limiting what it can actually do. But you're asking me to resolve all the SDGs <laughs> in one go. Just as it relates to your field. Just as it relates to future. poverty, education, and everything else. Yeah. <laughs> Fix it, Derek. Fix it, would you? Exactly. exactly. Well, certain technologies are obviously being easier to migrate across different economic environments. And the mobile device 
despite most things. It's a bit like the television. Of course, there are people without television, but the household devices, because of the number of them and the simplicity of, in a way, of them, the method of technical <laughs> simplicity of a washing machine, which is why it only costs about $300 or something, has enabled them to be across all. And these are critical because these are for daily functional use technologies. Now, I agree with you. If you want to do something a little more, ultimately, let's take VR as a good example. We can all talk about VR, but most of us don't have a VR set, even though it's an everyday thing we talk about. So it's not that poorer people don't have it. No one has it. Obviously, a lot of the sort of um, lower level technologies, which didn't seem like they were at the time, like a washing machine or TV or whatever, with time, have become so cheap they're available in most places. I know, of course, there are places not relatively speaking. And obviously, with time, this is a good thing. Yes, more and more people. I do meet more and more people, by the way, who do have phones I would never expect them to. And that's to do with the way that credit systems work. That's to do with the way that promotions work within organizations. So none of this is necessarily just about the technology. This is about, again, the ecosystem in which that technology thrives or doesn't thrive. We still do not have VR systems in our homes. We know that you need to harmonize three or four of the steep things for it to happen, right? Because technology on its own doesn't, it's great, but doesn't mean much if the price is completely off the, you know, or it's too clunky or the law says you can't use it. So a lot of the time, there are a whole variety of reasons why there's inequality of distribution of technologies. And of course, one of them is economic development. As I mentioned earlier, we've actually done relatively well with smartphones. Mm -hmm. Why? Because in most countries now, I didn't, this is something I've learned at least. Let's say I work a lot with Uganda, Rwanda, Kenya, is they buy a secondhand version of this. So they actually are not. So someone said to me, I just bought a new phone. And I said, Oh, that's good. That's what did you buy? They said, An iPhone. I went, What? Wow. And I was thinking, How could you, as a student, how could you find an iPhone? I said, I paid $150. And I said, Oh, that's cool. She said, Yeah, well, I bought a secondhand one. So, you know, there's a lot, there are a lot of systems. Then there are cre more credit systems than there used to be. What I'd call the household goods or consumer goods in general. We have very good structures to, to mollify or remedy that particular type of equality, inequalities. Of course, we still have them, but they're far less than they could be. The problem is much more on real tech, right? On real non-consumer tech, where either there are reasons why we won't sell it, or there's no, as I mentioned earlier, no architecture for its introduction, which is very common. Or there are no, there's no desire from the government of the day to 
introduce that at this point in time because it's either detrimental to their own authority or they have other general public desires that are greater than that. So a lot of reasons, and to be fair, accessibility is always going to be unbalanced, but it's changing a little bit because spread of development and patenting and invention has shifted. And that has allowed countries even that are looking at offer a geopolitical advantage in certain regions to be able to introduce technologies to that region because it gives them a different advantage. Maybe they don't need the political clout in that region based on politics or systems, but they can leverage technologies and investment in factories and so on to produce things, in the, which is what China's been doing. And so there are other ways that we're seeing shifts because of globalization. We have seen shifts in this particular issue. Okay. You brought up China. We touched on this a bit earlier as well. I mean, I think especially when we're talking about what AI can have access to. Security of these types of technologies is a key fundamental as well. I know it's an area you work on a lot in the human side of security, but when it comes especially to the machine side of things, when you're talking about what can be done, how moving forward with these types of technology and the access of information that we're essentially giving things like ChatGPT and HMI and BCI and even smart cities and IoT. The security becomes a fundamental metric. Oh. I know, again, that's a very broad area. We could do a full episode just on this. Yeah. It's one of those things. You can talk about each of these things, like smart cities and security, sort of a vacuum of the overall technological implementation, but they are in and of themselves a key factor. Yeah, what are your thoughts on this, especially when you're talking about things like, again, Neuralink, for example, that has access to potentially your innermost thoughts, coupled with the simple fact that we continuously hear all of these companies have data breaches and ransomware attacks. Absolutely. Well, so the next wave, if you want to call it that, of security concerns, other than drones and stuff like that, or weaponry, around IoT, IONT, OTT, all the stuff I was talking about, distributed sensing, because of the way they're structured, because they are made up of always made up of as a metaverse is three or four different interactive structures, integrated structures, like one for receiving the data, one for analyzing data, one for distributing the data. There's always that, and they're usually not on the same, often not on the same platforms, and therefore there's there always a chance of being hacked in between them. That's a big issue. Quantum IoT, which we're now beginning to see, it's the same issue, intelligent PSMI, which is another area where we're seeing, because each of these layers has security issues. And that's, that's even just looking at it from a, a, phys a virtual physical part of it. We're looking at things like end-to-end -end security, federated architecture stuff. But the other side of that, I think that's, we have this thing called, we're seeing more like on stuff like penetration testing, where we're able to, actually in advance do a lot of simulation scenarios of, to better understand how we deal on new things, so on new technologies, but on new environments for those technologies. 
Because we don't really have, we think we have a lot of experience with IoT, but not when we talk about connected buildings and stuff like that. We have it in household goods. And so one of the things we're looking at is what we call cognitive and rapid reconstruction response. So we can quickly see what's going on, so we can quickly react to it. If you're, right. there are all these things like, I don't know, Watson and IBM have lots of good systems in that area that we've seen over the years. But biosecurity, another massive area. So you were talking earlier about identity and authentication and everything else. But biosecurity is a massive area of break, break, break-ins on. So these intelligent and embodied agents more and more getting put into these systems are enabling us without doubt to improve that security. But we're seeing issues with metadata analysis on the dark web. We're seeing problems with the new cryptography, post-quantum, which will move on from blockchain possibly, because that's a lattice-based system. And within that problem, the shifting of identities and shifting of IP addresses becomes very complex because it can move much quicker through the lattice. It's difficult to find, right? So we're having to work on how do we deal with this stuff? So we're seeing much more things like the equivalent of undercover agent. We now see virtual undercover agents and things like that, right? So we're seeing a lot of other things happening, which is this transformation from, from real life into virtuality, that, but done in a very different way. That's what we have to do to see how we can deal with these changes in security. Because then we have things like cognitive cybersecurity systems, which are able to deal with textual things. So we can read text. We can, we're much better now at scanning text to find keywords or key issues. All this stuff is happening really, really quickly. And at the same time, criminals are behaving badly, <laughs> worse than they were. So there are these the clouds machine learning with multi-agents, all this stuff is doing a lot. Computer vision, all these things are coming in to help us. And the integration of those has been very good. But honestly, they're always a bit ahead, right? And it's difficult because what we do have with self-developing intelligent systems, with GPT and so on and so forth, is we hope that they will be able to react quicker if they're programmed correctly by finding their own solutions to incoming issues. I can't go too much into this for obvious reasons. You can imagine that at least now we're not standing still. My personal belief was there was a period where we were miles behind. I think everyone was taken a bit by surprise. They shouldn't. The trouble is that serious institutions do not pay attention to things like gaming or other sub-genre of society, which is where much of this comes from. They don't really pay attention to decentralized activities. If they did, they would soon understand. What about the fundamental that AI, obviously, if it can be used for pretty much anything, especially as an assistant, if you will, it could be used to assist hackers. Well, it is. How do you compute for that? Well, that's where you have to have early detection systems and things. Ultimately, you'd like to think always that you were cleverer. You're not. Maybe you're equally clever. But 
then it's a, it's, a, it's a game, isn't it? It's a game. It's a game of strategies. Yeah, because at the end of the day, the smartest hack is the one that uses people. Uh, you're only ever as strong as your weakest link, and you can just use the most basic social engineering and phishing techniques to get someone's password. Once you have access to their password, you have access to their network, and then that's game over, isn't it? But if you think about it, who are you fighting today? You're not fighting an individual criminal. You're fighting a whole world of social networks with information on how to do anything that you want at any given point in time. It's not like if you want to know how to do something, you can look it up and learn how to do it. You want to, I don't know, I won't say because I'd be giving away <laughs> some ideas, but it's not very clever. Not very clever, right? But the truth is that you can learn to make anything on YouTube. You can get any code you want from certain hubs. You can, let's be fair, you're not actually, you know, where the police is not, or the authorities are not just fighting, you know, a guy with a, a brain and a basic tool set. He's finding a whole structure. Right. Plus new tools like GPT. That's the point. So, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. But that's part of our job, isn't it, to resolve that? Let's end on a more positive note. I have two quick questions for you. We talked about futurism and becoming a futurist. What are some of the steps that an aspiring futurist could take to become a futurist? Is there a course someone should take? Is there any advice you have for them? I talked, said to you at the very beginning that what a futurist does, in my view, is to work with unstructured knowledge in unknown worlds. There's two sides to that. So what is unstructured knowledge? How do you gain unstructured knowledge? It's about connecting disconnect. It's about getting rid of any assumption that you've ever had about anything. It's about the ability to recontextualize and reconceptualize ideas. Anything, anything. It's about being open to believing that much of this will happen, it will happen in a different format, maybe, than the one that you that we read about or we expect or we projected whatever it happens to be, but that the possibility is there. The thing, the unthinkable is valid. My, my personal view is that one thing that's really critical here is to develop and be able to do that is develop alternative thinking techniques, is have that ability to model and to think about things the same thing from multiple perspectives and to really cross-check yourself, continuously think about something from these multiple angles because it teaches you not just to think in broader terms, but it teaches you to, to think of something else, to come up with something completely different to the thing that you actually started with. And I mentioned unknown worlds, and I say they're unknown because I literally believe that future in which I will still live, 25, 30 years now, will be vastly different to the one that, even, that I project, even though 
I'm working in that field all the time. And to embrace that. Because recognizing that we change too, that we adapt. I'm going to go into the whole thing about adaptation because there are four types of people. Some are very good at adapting, some <laughs> just refuse to do anything. Others go with the flow. But let's just assume that ultimately people adapt. People who 20 years ago or 15 years ago did not have an internet or didn't have a computer, the great divide, if you remember, over computers at the time, use a computer today and use the internet. But the other factor, I think, is build a network, okay? Because over the years, 27 years, and if you take, don't take anything before that, I've managed to build an incredible network of experts. And I mentioned sci-fi buddies, but I could mention anyone for any, and I mentioned neurology, but many fields. And the point is that when I want something, I more or less know where to go to challenge myself and to challenge my thinking and to check my thinking and myself. So I will go to someone like Brian Majerko at the Expressive Machinery Lab at Georgia Tech, and I'll talk to him about creative social interaction and, I don't know, intelligent agents and how they're being developed and why they're being developed and stuff like that. Or if I want to talk about interfaces, I'll talk to Patty Mice at MIT and her lab, what projects are they working on? And she's working on things like programming brain rhythms, because that's important if we understand we want to understand how people react within the metaverse in 3D worlds and stuff like that. So I'm able to, I know these people in key places that I can check myself, my own thinking, but get new thinking. And I think that's really critical for futurists because ultimately at the end of the day, we read so much and we have our own thoughts and we build so much and we do a lot of things. And we're obviously attempting to be ahead of the game and create new things for the future and whatever, but it's not something you can do alone. It's something you need your own team, but you need this network is really your team. If you want to talk about transhumanism, you go to a transhumanist specialist. You go to Natasha Vitamore or someone and talk to them about it. And I think that's been a critical part of that. The other thing is I'm talking about writing. I do think writing is important, getting your stuff down or doing lots of presentations because it makes you put all this into context. It makes you really rethink it, which is, doesn't make any sense, is it? And so I think structuring your thinking, writing, and whether it's papers or books or whatever is really helpful. Anything else you want to add? Anything else that you think our listeners should keep an eye for? I am writing another book. I'm writing a book called... I suppose it's a follow-up, a decade long in between. So there was nearly a decade between future frequencies and future flow. Now there's a decade. Now the new one's called future rhythms. But it's sort of the same type of thing. It's really talking about how you leverage these alternative worlds, these alternative people, alternative lifestyles, to get a better understanding of how those can influence the future and influence things that we don't normally look at. I like to study lifestyles and 
art and music and films and things that are outside of the norm to really work out how these can influence the future. So that's what it's about. And that should be done this year. So. Wonderful. Uh, we'll certainly keep an eye out for that. I'd like to thank you so much for your time. It was a phenomenal conversation. I think we covered so many different topics from different sectors. I think that just goes to show the plethora of expertise that you actually possess. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you.